Welcome to Human Circus. A man's return from the sea is like his rise from the grave, and the port is like the place of congregation on the day of judgment. There is questioning and settlement of accounts, and weighing and counting. Ibn al-Mujawir, early 13th century. Approaching Alexandria from the sea, the travelers would have seen the lighthouse first, the Pharos Island Tower visible from as far away as 110 kilometers. As they got closer, they would have seen those wide, straight streets, straight enough that you could look through from the gate of the Rashid to the gate of the sea. They would have seen the marble columns, gleaming white houses, and beautiful palaces. And then, closer still, the frantic bustle of the harbor, the comings and goings of customs officials and dock workers, all processing the incoming ships seeing their cargo unloaded, inspected, and taxed, and then taxied off to the city's many markets and warehouses, or for immediate transport, onto other destinations. Their ship's captain would have brought it in warily, watchful for the narrow channels of approach, the shifting sandbanks, the perilous coastal waves. During the busy months of August and September, they would have seen the many ships that had departed in the spring, returning for winter, and the last preparations of those soon bound for Italy and elsewhere, bringing back indigo, flax, and spices with them. Travel on the Mediterranean had its season, and nature determined a cycle of human endeavor which merchants, pilgrims, and other travelers were bound to follow. Benjamin of Tudela wrote of merchants arriving in Alexandria from the Italian city-states in Al-Andalus, from France and Flanders, Scandinavia and Saxony, from across the Maghreb, Syria, the Arab world, Ethiopia, and India, all coming to the city with its inns of many nations, and through which flowed silks, spices, and the enslaved. And new residents arrived in Egypt there, too, Many new arrivals from Al-Andalus and the Maghreb, driven to pack up and move their lives by the Almohad and Norman invasions of the 12th century, and among them, many Jews, who now joined those who had lived there for generations. Alexandria was an important port, its Piera, King's Highway, running into the mist of the sea, but it was not, despite its advantageous position, the commercial capital of Egypt at the time. Many goods may have entered via Alexandria, but people living there wrote to the city of Fastat, where those goods were plentifully stored, to secure them, saying they needed shoes, clothing, parchment or ink, cinnamon, pepper, or ginger. Nothing is worth buying here, they would sometimes say in their letters. Fastat had come a long way, from its 643 beginnings as a military camp of the conquering Muslims safely inland and removed from seaborne threats. It was now the primary commercial city in the area, the place where the bulk of the major transactions were made, and only about three kilometers from the caliphal capital of Al-Kahira, Cairo. Unlike Alexandria, the city of Fustat 
was not known so much for the violent dissatisfaction and unruliness of its lower classes, the unrest that periodically drew the attention of the authorities. Unlike Alexandria, Fustat was where people tended to come and stay and live. Alexandria, where they might stay for a time, then leave. To Fustat, then, after a short stay in their port of arrival, would our Moses and David be going? Hello and welcome. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that follows the stories of medieval travelers and also the stories around them. At this time, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're neither involved in a land war in Asia, nor behind the wheel of a large automobile, I ask you to take a moment, this moment right now would be best, to have a look at the Human Circus Patreon page and see if it's something that you'd like to support. You can find that page at patreon.com forward slash human circus or via my website at humancircuspodcast.com. And on that note, I'd like to thank my newest Patreon supporter. Thank you very much, Harriet. Now, let's get back to the story, to that of the brothers Moses, David, and their family, and to their 1166 arrival in Egypt. There, though they may have missed Al-Andalus, they would make their home. And there, Moses would spend the greater part of his life. This episode will be about that arrival in Egypt, the Fatimid Caliphate, and the merchants that made their way south along the Nile, east to the Red Sea, and then much, much further east. It will be about those patterns of trade, and one very personal story within those patterns. And it will begin in Fusat. The trip from Alexandria to Fustat was not far. I mean, it's roughly 210k or 43 hours by foot, according to Google Maps. But in terms of the distances we're often dealing with here, it was not so far. And it was a well-traveled route. People, goods, and information streamed between the two cities. Messengers, leaving regularly, brought mail from one to the other in four to six days, even faster by flying courier and merchants frequently made the trip. The brothers would have had little trouble in arranging their travel. The city they reached was a thriving hub of trade and Nile traffic, a hinge between the northern Nile opening onto the Mediterranean, and the south, with its caravan routes to the Red Sea, and beyond it, the ocean and access to India and more. The city was an industrial center for ceramics, metal, and glassware, as well as paper, sugar, and cloth, and a home to Jews whose names indicated its international character. Al-Fasi, Al-Masali, Al-Barki, and Al-Maghribi, from across Morocco, Libya, Tunisia, and the Maghreb more generally. Al-Dimashki, from Damascus, Al-Tarabalusi, from Tripoli, Al-Hurani and Al-Raki, from Syria, Al-Andalusi, from Spain. When al-Mukadasi wrote of the city, it was with the words that the fruits of Syria and al-Maghreb reach it in all seasons, and travelers are ever coming to it from al-Iraq and from the eastern countries, and the ships of the peninsula and the countries of Rum are ever plowing their way to it. Its commerce is marvelous, and its trades are profitable, and its wealth abundant. It was, it sounds, a land of financial opportunity, 
And unlike their lives in Morocco and Al-Andalus, where religious freedoms were limited under Almohad rule, it was also one where they would have been relieved to at last live without much fear or worry, from that direction at least. The Shia Fatimid caliphs, for the most part, did not care for the beliefs and practices of their people, the reign of al-Hakim a notable exception, just so long as they paid their taxes. So while Shia festivals were publicly celebrated, the Jewish communities in Fustat, along with the Christian and Sunni ones, lived largely by their own rule. They produced leaders of broader society, at court, in administration, and in the highest ranks of the army. They worked in tax farming and governance, or as apothecaries, physicians, or bureaucrats. And into this world of relative freedom and opportunity stepped Moses and David. They moved into the area bordered by the Kasser al-Rum, the fortress of the Romans, no longer really a fortress at all in function. They lived in part of the Tujib district, still named after the Arabs who had brought back great riches from the conquest of North Africa centuries before. In the neighborhoods around them, you might find a property surrounded by a small house, a store in ruins, a newly built caravanserai, and a tower of the Roman fortress, which belonged to the Jewish synagogue. There were high-priced homes, compounds really, which stood alone. And there were multi-purpose, multi-story buildings housing both residences and businesses, including wine and oil presses, raisin sellers, perfumers and druggists, sugar refiners and glassware merchants. Within this world, the family made their home. Moses associated with highly placed administrators. He taught the sciences. He traded in gems. He practiced medicine. There's even a story that he once refused to go serve a king of the Franks, which some have fancifully connected to Richard the Lionhearted. Moses, quite against the grain, didn't believe it was correct to live on the proceeds of religious office or teachings. Much better, he wrote, to strip hides off animal carcasses than to say to other people, I am a great sage, I am a priest. Provide me, therefore, with maintenance. So, Moses earned his living in other ways, and somehow in all of this, also found time to compose his immensely important commentary on the Mishnah, or the transmission of Jewish oral law. As for David, well, it is rather hard to say what he was up to. Perhaps, as would later be the case, he was the commercial arm of the family, the businessman in the market, maybe involved in the gem trade, as we hear Moses was, maybe investing the family's money in ventures from the city, perhaps traveling abroad as a merchant, along the Nile or further afield. And Maimon, he was dead. Sometimes, Maimon ben Joseph is said to have died even before they came to Egypt, to have been buried in what is now Israel. But according to Moses' letter to their host in Acre, it had been in the months just after they'd parted. It's uncertain, then, that he would have lived to see Fustat, perhaps only Alexandria, if that, of his family's new homeland. And the sisters and the mother, you might be asking? Well, of the mother, I'm afraid, there's still nothing. Again, why some have suggested she died in childbirth or soon after. But for the sisters, we do have something. We have a letter from David in which he asked Moses to convey his greetings to his sisters, plural. We also have a letter from a sister named Miriam, a Miriam who had apparently remained in either Spain or the Maghreb, 
She had wanted Moses to help her find her son, who she'd heard nothing of for months and was quite worried about. And like David, she sends greetings to their sisters, again, plural, giving us at least three, one in Spain or the Maghreb, two in Egypt, likely Fustat. So, we have a family there in Fustat, Moses, David, probably two sisters, maybe a mother, though maybe not, as no one wrote, give my regards to my mother, with Moses a wife, for they'd married soon after the move to Egypt, and David also, a wife and a daughter, already arrived or on the way. And we have them very close to the events that came not many years after their arrival there in Egypt. Close to the fall of the Fatimids, the end of the caliphate's rule in North Africa, stretching back 250 years to the victories of its founder and the 11th Imam, Abdullah al-Mahdi Bala, and his general in the year 909. The Maghreb, as we saw a little of last episode, was a place where movements took hold, and among its Berbers, the preaching of Ismaili beliefs had found enough support to see Abdullah brought to power, and the kingdom they had made had grown, stretching from present-day Algeria in the west to the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula in the east, up north into Syria and into Sicily, but it had contracted since then. By the time Moses and David lived in Fatimid lands, those lands were more limited, and not all was well. Civil war and the suppression of an uprising by Turkish forces in the military had taken their toll. A Berber dynasty had broken off in North Africa and allied themselves with the Abbasids, and Seljuks and Crusaders had eaten away at their possessions in the Levant. What remained, essentially, was Egypt, roughly as we know it today and even that was all about to be taken from them. Clearly, there had been problems for some time, but the final stages of these problems, if we can try to neatly pick these things apart, came with a struggle over the Fatimid Vizurate, a struggle for power between Abu Lashbal Dirham and Abu Shuja Shawar. When this struggle did not go well for Shawar, he looked elsewhere for the resources he needed, that extra push to achieve his goals, and he sold the caliphate's interest to do so. He sold them in Damascus to the governor, Nur ad-Din, who he promised a third of Egypt's revenues in return for the army that would unseat his rival. And Nur ad-Din loved the idea. He liked the look of a place for himself in Egypt and a hold on its wealth. He'd had his eye on it for a number of years. He and the king of Jerusalem both had, and the Byzantine emperor too. When an opportunity had presented itself in the past, Nur ad-Din had received right of rule for Egypt from the Abbasid Caliph, if only he could make it his. Now, he seized the opportunity and sent an army under his emir, Asad al-Din Shirku, and in that army, that emir's nephew, a young man named Salah ad-Din, the Salah ad-Din, who would go on to unite resistance to the Crusaders to take back Jerusalem and so much else. For now, this army did its work, and all went to plan, with Dirham swept out of power, and Shuar swept in, and established as vizier. But then, as so often seems to happen in these situations, Shuar did the imperial equivalent of a dine and dash. He'd enjoyed his meal and reaped its benefits, and now he wanted those Syrian fighters gone, and he did not want to pay for it. 
He ordered Chirku and his men out, and then pivoted to a new ally, reaching out to King Amalric of Jerusalem, whose armies had raided Egypt just the year before, and making the point that Amalric really didn't want the forces of Nuradin, who had spent a lifetime fighting crusaders, to his south. Shawar offered allowances and an alliance, and having used the Syrians to push himself back into Egypt, he now used crusaders to push them back out, with joint forces besieging Shirku and soon forcing his departure. So it had been, back in 1164, before our central characters arrived on the scene in Egypt, and it had gone very nicely for Shawar. But of course, he was going to need to pay for that meal eventually. And eventually would come, in just a few years. Shirku and his army were soon back in Egypt, Salah Adin again with them. And Amalric was back too, his status as ally, muddied somewhat by his violently sacking one city, threatening Cairo, and possibly causing a fire in Moses and David's new home. But for that fire, the last days of the Fatimid Caliphate, and Fustat's place in international trade, we'll have to wait just a moment for this short break. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There are various stories as to why the fire happened. Was it a scorching of the earth before the advancing army to deny them a launching point to take Cairo? Did Shawar give the order to deter Amalric from violent sack and slaughter, as had occurred at another city? Was it a deliberate act on Shawar's part at all? That is the common narrative. However, some sources suggest that it was not a deliberate move on Shawar's part, but the result of anti-Christian violence provoked either by a particular church's embellishments or fear and anger over the encroaching Christian army. However it happened, Moses, David, and their family would have a front-row seat, whether to the widespread destruction and suffering that are sometimes depicted, or perhaps to something more limited. The damage to the city was not lasting, at least according to the reports of travelers soon after. While Moses raised money to ransom the crusaders' Jewish captives, They seem not to have been otherwise affected by the nearby fighting or the fire, seem not to have been troubled by flames in their neighborhood at all, as their lives in Fustat went on, and the Fatimid Caliphate entered its final chapter. And Moses and David were not only close in proximity to the last days of Fatimid rule, there was a deeper connection there. Moses' patron, a man by the name of Al-Qadi al-Fadil, had long served the Fatimids, and this put both men, both Moses and al-Fadil, in an intriguing position. Not unique, but certainly interesting, as the vizier Shawar again opened up negotiations with King Amalric. In his book, Joel L. Kramer paints a bit of a picture of this moment. 
Quote, for Maimonides and Alphadil, the situation was bizarre. Alphadil was, after all, a Sunni Muslim in the entourage of Fatima Ismailis, making common cause with Christians to protect Egypt's independence from Sunni Turks ruling in Syria. Maimonides was a Jew in the entourage of Fatima Ismailis, supporting his Sunni Muslim patron's policy of alignment with Christians. The situation was complex for all involved, for Moses and his family, for Al-Fadil, for Shawar, and for the Crusaders. And as we really always find, the Crusaders were living rather more interesting lives than the kind of civilizational struggle that their actions in the Levant are often boiled down to. Now, they again negotiated with Shawar over again helping him against his still unpaid helpers of the past. But Shirku was not put off by Amalric's interest in Egypt. Far from it. Shirku would soon manage to see Shawar killed, supplant him, and set himself up as the new vizier in Egypt, if only for all of a heartbreakingly fleeting two months. That's when his own health failed him, and he'd die, leaving the way open for his nephew, Salah ad-Din, to step into his place to ruthlessly crush Fatima's loyalist opposition to his move, and to stave off crusader attempts at Egyptian acquisition, becoming something of a savior figure against Christian invasion in the process. And two years later, when the final Fatimid caliph al-Adi died at only 20 years old in 1171, that left Salah ad-Din free to step up, to step up into his place, free to seek out and eliminate the last of the Fatimid sympathizers and to establish the Ayyubid dynasty with himself in power. He'd go on to take Jerusalem, to expand his rule into great chunks of Palestine and Syria, and to unite all of this with Egypt under his sway. He'd war with Rashid al-Din Sanan's Nazari Ismailis, also known as the Assassins, and with King Richard I of England and the members of the Third Crusade. He stands out as the canonical figure, a star of his era. And Moses was attached to that star. His patron, Al-Fadil, rather than glumly look on as his horse in the race, Shawar, was outmaneuvered and outmuscled as his power and life slipped away, had made the move that made sense. He'd become Salah ad-Din's chief administrator, had been there when he'd become vizier, and been the one who proclaimed the Fatimid Caliph's death a quote-unquote natural one. So Moses, after the years in difficulty and in exile, was now quite close to power, power in its highest forms. And he had a certain amount of power of his own at this time, too. He was made Ra'is al-Yahud, the head of the Jews in Egypt, taxing and administering to his community as the Ayyubids took power. And he was well on his way to becoming the judicial authority he would come to be, the one to whom, as he would later write, all or most of the judges of Alexandria came for his opinion. So we have a picture of a family living in some degree of comfort, even as dynastic upheaval occurred all around them, and as Salah ad-Din established his grip on Egypt. And we're going to leave them for a moment, to put aside the reshaping of the region that Salah ad-Din was going to be doing, to talk about something else. Let's talk about trade. Let's talk about the shipbuilding facilities near Cairo. The ships which competed with those of the Italian cities, and those which aggressively patrolled the Red Sea and access to the Indian Ocean. 
Let's talk about the Egyptian spice route and all the dealers in cloth, silk, sled, gems, porcelain, and the enslaved. Let's talk about the merchants with their operations in Aden and on the Indian coast. Egypt operated within two fairly distinct trading systems, and as a doorway between them, its ports opened to the world of the Mediterranean, and, via caravan to the Red Sea, the Indian coast and lands beyond, to China and the Spice Islands of Indonesia. Byzantine merchants brought silks, mastic, and cheese. Italians delivered pilgrims and crusaders to Acre, and then continued on to Egypt, perhaps bringing that city's high-quality glassware with them, and forming a triangle of commerce. And from the Maghreb, ships traced Maimonides' course along the coast of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. In winter months, trade from the Levant continued by land along the coast and from Damascus and eastward, along inland caravan routes that passed to the east of the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. And often goods were moved over a combination of land and water. Silk from Khorasan, from northeastern Iran, went by way of Aleppo and then Tyre, before reaching Egypt by sea. Paper from Damascus was also brought to Levantine ports, before making its way south. And back into the Mediterranean system, Poured Egyptian flax, indigo, sugar, metalwork, leather, paper, and pottery. Into the Mediterranean, poured colorants, aromatics, spices, and more. In poured frankincense, myrrh, pepper, cloves, cinnamon, sandalwood, nutmeg, ginger, cardamom, betel nuts, pearls, cottons, silks, and porcelains. From Arabia, India, and beyond. And all of this was not entirely new. In fact, it was old. Very old. It might have even been old by the time we have the first-century Roman, Petronius, complaining of the scandalously insubstantial fabric of the East that Roman women had taken to wearing. We have Roman trade in gems, silks, spices, sugar, fruit, ivory, animals, and wood that were all brought from Indian shores, and the substantial finds of Roman coins since made on those same shores. By the 8th century, We have Arab and Persian ships completing the journey all the way to the ports of China. And by the time of our story, we have the Fatimids having moved from Tunisia and really nurtured and encouraged this trade through the Red Sea, depending on your reading, either actively diverting it from the hands of their Abbasid rivals, taking advantage of it to transport Ismaili missionaries, or simply profiting handsomely from their grip on Egypt and the sea. Perhaps all three. Whatever the Fatimid caliphs had wanted out of it, they and then the Ayyubids oversaw a crucial gateway through which money and material flowed between circuits in the global system. And if Egypt was one gateway between international trading systems, then the Yemeni port of Aden, beyond the mouth of the Red Sea, was the center of a spiderweb. Ships reaching it from the sea to the west, from the ports along the Persian Gulf and Gulf of Oman to the north, from all along the eastern coast of Africa to the south, and from the east, from India, with all the goods it produced and which passed through it. Like Alexandria, on the Mediterranean side, this unwelcoming peninsula, though dry, rocky, hot, and inhospitable, was an opening into an ocean of possibilities, ones like Mangalore or Kalam. The Jewish communities of Aden and the west coast of India, though distant, were bound by regular communication, by ties of business, family, and the rabbinical court at Aden, 
under whose jurisdiction the Jews of India operated. And this trade led to established communities there on the Indian coast of Muslim and Jewish merchants. Those involved would often need to stay on layovers of three to six months, obeying the natural cycles of the sea. They'd settle in and set up all the requirements of a life there, mix and mingle with locals who they might employ, do business with, or sometimes marry. And as that last possibility implies, some would stay much beyond what the monsoon required, very much making the place their home. One man, for example, spent the better part of 17 years there on the Malabar coast, establishing a successful import-export business, operating a bronzeware factory, and possibly marrying. Those like this who came to India and remained there wrote regularly to representatives, often in Aden, and through that city to their family, in Egypt, Sicily, Spain, or the Maghreb. They and their fellow merchants crisscrossed the Arabian Sea with cargo and correspondence. But we shouldn't let these close ties and frequent crossings between Aden and India lull us into thinking that the voyage was not a daunting one. It was, like sailing the Mediterranean, a seasonal endeavor, and one that required knowledge and skill on the part of the Arab and Indian sailors who dominated these waters. Dictated by the monsoon and periods of predictably unfavorable conditions, it actually aligned with the Mediterranean situation, in such a way that goods might move through Alexandria, up the Nile, and via the Red Sea, arrive in Aden in late summer, to be sent on to India even as the Mediterranean vessels were being pulled in for repairs. And by the end of winter, goods brought from India can make the return trip reaching the Mediterranean ports for the new sailing season there in spring. The ships making the trip to India were, as travelers such as Marco Polo would note, with wonder and no small amount of distress, entirely without nails. They were sewn together and sealed. It was an old technique, and not a bad one, but they required frequent maintenance and were quite fragile among the shallows, reefs, and storms. Entering and exiting the open sea were particularly dangerous moments, and diving operations were sometimes attempted to recover sunken goods just off the coast, in the waters around Aden, in the Bab al-Mandab Strait, and near the Indian shore. Shipwrecks were not infrequent, and they led to loss of baggage, money, and life. Still, travelers ventured across the water like worms clinging to a log. And against these dangers, important letters were copied out and dispatched on multiple ships. Goods were spread around to minimize the loss of all the eggs in one boat. And convoys were formed to go in relative safety and discourage piracy. But convoys and escort ships or not, that proximity to other boats was not always sufficient to save you. Sometimes, it was only enough that you could hear the screams of a nearby crew in the dark, crying out in horror as their boat broke up. Sometimes, it was enough that some fellow traveler might preserve your name and fate, and later inform your family what had become of you. They might write something like this, something like the authorities in Aden did, when an Egyptian merchant on the way to India was lost. Quote, These are the details of their drowning. The ship they were in, that is the Kulami, sailed from Aden together with the other ships. This ship and the Baribitani were in the same position, traveled together for about four days from Aden. 
On the eve of the fifth day, the sailors of the Barabatani heard the cries of the sailors of the ship Kulami and their screams and shrieks in the night as the water inundated them. When morning came, they did not encounter any trace or evidence of the Kulami ship. Any ship that sinks in the environs of Aden never surfaces, nor does anyone who was in it survive at all. Because of the turbulence of the sea, and the distance from the shore, and the abundance of the sharks. So when merchants made for India, they did not do so lightly. They wondered whether they would again see their families. They surrendered their fates to God, writing, as one man did to his wife, We will not be reunited, unless God wills. And with that, let's move from the idea of travel and trade going east from Egypt to one particular journey, to that of one particular person, to the expedition of Moses' brother, David ben Maimon. But first, a quick break. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The exact date is uncertain, but we could say the early 1170s. For the sake of something solid to hold on to, we could say 1171. We find David still in Fustat, but about to depart. We find him preparing to take money of his own, as well as funds from Moses and from other investors, and preparing to part from his wife and daughter, and leave on business for Idab on the Red Sea. We find him at the port, and among all the bustle of merchants and other travelers from across the medieval world, among those who left or arrived by the Nile, or made their living one way or another from those who did. He would have brought with him money, food, bedding, trading goods, letters of introduction, safe conduct or credit, and his traveling companion, a man named Ma'ani. He would have said goodbye to his family if they had accompanied him down to the boat and he would have climbed aboard an oar-driven galley, and then watched as Fustat slipped away behind him. As I have alluded to already, he would not live to see it again, not the city he now called home, his brother Moses, or his wife and daughter. There would have been danger as his boat moved upriver, danger of theft or murder by his fellow passengers or the crew, enough so that taking the trip alone was considered unwise. Sudden winds could cause smaller vessels to capsize, and the changeable riverbed brought the risk of running aground and the boatmen needing to scramble into the water and shoulder or pole the ship from its predicament. Piracy, as with any substantial body of water, was a concern. Tying up at night for rest or supplies 
an invitation to bandits from the shore, and the taxation of local officials could easily stray into extortion. Despite these dangers, the journey was a scenic one. David and the other travelers would have looked up at the palaces and forts of the city sailing past, the mosques and the minarets. They would have seen richly irrigated land bursting with life, with date palms, figs and melons, barley and flax. And then beyond either side, the harsh expanses of the desert, the Libyan desert on one shore and the eastern desert on the other. Villages would have passed by, and with them people going about the daily business of the river, their laundry, fishing, and hunting. There would have been sparrowhawks, geese, and swallows which would have flown above, and water buffalo which would have crossed before them to clamber back up onto dry land. And there were crocodiles, of course, basking on the banks and waiting just below the surface, fed every now and then on an unfortunate passenger from a boat such as David's, some victim of bandits, their fellow passengers, or their own clumsiness. Up the river some sixty-five kilometers, David would have passed into Fayum, a region renowned for its flax production, but hardly limited to it. There was sesame and rice, and orchards of dates, grapes, and sycamores, all too soon enough to be replaced by sugarcane. There were Coptic Christian monasteries, and there was the Bayer Yusuf, the canal said to have been dug by the biblical Joseph. At Akmim, further on, they would have needed to stop, to wait, and pay the toll. The officials there were known to make travelers wait quite a while, and to squeeze them for all they had but at least there was the ancient temple to admire in the meantime. So striking was it that the widely traveled Ibn Jubair called it the most remarkable of the temples of the world. He was struck by its size and mighty columns, all covered in relief carvings, its rich colors including lapis lazuli, and perhaps most of all, its ceiling. The ceiling was constructed of stone slabs so precisely joined as to seem a vast single piece and it was beautifully decorated in birds about to leap into flight, human figures in a multitude of positions holding weapons, statues, or chalices, and other, more mysterious forms that he said would take too long to describe, and which words are not adequate to express. And from that ceiling down to the floor, both within and without, the stone walls of the temple were covered in script and images, with hardly space to place a needle between them. Some of them, the traveler reported, dreadful in human forms that terrify the beholder and fill them with wonder and amazement. In the early 14th century, Al-Tujibi would also write of these images on the wall, mentioning that people, he would say ignorant people, still then came to the temple and made offerings to those ancient figures in the belief that they could perform magic on their behalf. The ancient temple, evidently retaining something of its power to overawe, even surrounded by Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And perhaps David stopped there and admired those same images. But certainly if he did not, there would have been other temples, shrines, and caves along the cliffs of the Nile as he made his way on the 550-kilometer, roughly three-week journey from Fastat to the caravan town of Kus. Kus, the mostly Christian capital of Upper Egypt, connected the Red Sea to the Nile system and through it the Mediterranean. It drew merchants from India, Ethiopia, Zanzibar, and Aden, whose goods were sent by boat down the Nile, and pilgrims on their way to Mecca rested there before crossing east to the sea. 
It was, via the river on one side and the desert routes leading to the water on the other, a link between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. David and Ma'ani would have rested there. In this town used to travelers, and with a large Jewish community, accustomed to receiving visitors. It was a good place to recover, and to make arrangements for the next stretch of the journey. They would have needed a caravan bound for Idab on the coast. They would have needed to hire camels, drivers, and handlers, to supply themselves with water and food for the journey, to load their baggage, and so begin the nearly 500-kilometer crossing of the eastern desert. An intimidating prospect, scattered with dried oases and the dried bones of those who hadn't made it. Some went in relative luxury, on camel-borne litters and beneath canopies to protect them against the sun. They might even read or play chess as the interminable sands passed below them. But that was not the way for most, and that would not have been the way for David and Ma'ani. As it happened, they did not make the journey with the caravan at all. Almost unbelievably, David allowed himself to be convinced by Ma'ani that they should leave their party and go it alone. A shockingly stupid decision, a disastrous leap, moved mostly by ignorance, but also perhaps by a not-ungrounded fear of what it meant to go by caravan. One went in numbers to take advantage of the expertise of those who regularly made the trip, to avoid becoming lost and dying in the desert, and for safety and strength against banditry. But of course, such a sizable party also made for a more appealing target, a plump and juicy fruit to be plucked from the branch. They might be more likely to be ambushed where a smaller party could go unnoticed. And then there were the guides and protectors themselves, the Beja tribesmen, who could be just as threatening to their charges as any attackers, and nearly as likely to take everything they could from them. David's own letter as to the events is incomplete. But what survives does seem to indicate a distrust of someone in charge of the caravan. A fear, even. And maybe they were right in this assessment. But accurate or not as judges of character, they were now striking out across this region of the Sahara without the comforts or guidance of the group. And they had regrets. They would wish that they hadn't gone alone. But there was no longer anything they could do about it. To search for the rest of the party would have been folly, even fatal and they could only press on towards Idab and the Red Sea. For nearly three weeks they went this way, enduring the searing heat of the day and the winds of the night, conserving water, and likely wondering if this one mistake might not be their last. But they not only made it, unscathed by brigandry and baggage intact, their idiocy was in a sense vindicated. For God, as David put it, had willed they should be saved while others were not so lucky. So there they were at Idab city gates, unloading their belongings, when those who had stayed together came straggling in. They had been robbed and wounded. Some had died of thirst. An acquaintance named Ibn al-Rashidi was with them. He was unharmed, but he'd been robbed. And David wrote in a letter to his brother Moses that was all he could think of. The thought that Moses would hear that al-Rashidi had been attacked and think that David had been in his company, that Moses would worry for him. Then, David wrote, God came between him and his reason. He wandered through the marketplace without knowing where he was, his mind on Moses, back in Fostat. And reading that letter, Moses would have felt keenly the sense that his little brother, who he had helped raise and educate, was now beyond his reach and protection. As he continued to read, 
his alarm, his distress, would only have increased. According to David, there had been nothing of note to purchase in Idab, save for indigo. There was no good business to be done there. So he had resolved to press on, to make the voyage to India. He had already endured hardships enough in the desert, that the way by sea should be nothing. And God would surely again preserve him, as he extended his initial trip into a 5,800-kilometer expedition from Fustat to India. On this stretch, he wouldn't be going with Ma'ani, whose poor judgment had led to his troubles so far. He'd sail instead with a man named Mansur, and on the same ship as others who he mentioned. The broker's son Salim and his nephew, Makarim al-Harari, the silk merchant, and his brother, Sitgazal's brother. And he went on, speaking of others who Moses would know. Ma'ani and Ibn al-Kuayis had embarked already on another ship. Bu'alala was safe and his goods intact, though his ship had foundered. But Ibn Atiyah and Ibn al-Makdisi had lost all but their money and lives in a shipwreck. These details David recounted not to cause his brother concern, but to be passed along to the other's families. David urged his brother not to worry for him, to reassure his family. I am doing all of this out of my continuous efforts for your material well-being, he wrote. Although you have never imposed on me anything of the kind, so be steadfast. God will replace your losses and bring me back to you. Anyhow, what is done is gone, and I am sure this letter will reach you at a time when I, God willing, shall have already made most of the way. But the counsel of God alone will stand. So he wrote, apparently as a caravan was ready to make the journey back west to the Nile, with his letter going with it. David, not knowing he'd never have another chance to write more, promised to later tell in full all that had happened to him. He made ready to depart. He was there at the docks where pilgrims made their way toward Mecca, where goods from East Africa, South Arabia, India, Indonesia, and China all arrived, and where customs were paid, where ginger, pepper, galangal, cinnamon, cloves, cotton, porcelain, and silk were unloaded to be sent on to Fustat, or beyond to Alexandria and the ports of the Mediterranean, where pearls, dates, glassware, sugar, copper, corals, lead, textiles, and paper were loaded on the ships heading east. For all the traffic that passed through, though, it seems to have been a fairly small town, and for many, not a place you would stay for long if given the choice. It was renowned for its appallingly hot winds, summer sandstorms, and mistreatment of pilgrims. It was thought sufficiently inhospitable that people sometimes hid there with their debts, or were exiled to the prison of the Fatimid Caliphs, there among those reed dwellings between the eastern desert and the Red Sea. Ibn Jubair, would note the similarity of the town's name to the Arabic word for torture or punishment. It was no place to linger, and David boarded one of those ships to leave. David's ship would likely have stopped in Aden, having navigated the difficult Red Sea. He may have looked for opportunity there, many merchants found it there, but he journeyed on, encouraged perhaps by something gleaned while in the port, some suggestion of better possibilities ahead. Or maybe, as in Idab, he simply arrived at an inopportune time, and so sailed on. And it's not certain where his ship was wrecked, and he and his companions with it. But somewhere on the long voyage from the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula to the coast of India, it happened. 
Perhaps there was warning enough of trouble that the crew would have flung their cargo from the side in order to lighten the load and save themselves and their ship. But whatever they attempted, it was not enough. He had begun his life in Islamic Spain, had lived in Morocco, had made his way to Jerusalem, and then at last made a home in Egypt, had traveled the Nile, the Red Sea, and then made to cross the Arabian Sea. But David did not reach India, and he was lost, along with the investments of those whose money he carried with him. From then until this day, his brother Moses would later write, that is, about eight years, I have been in a state of disconsolate mourning. How can I be consoled? For he was my son. He grew up upon my knees. He was my brother, my pupil. It was he who did business in the marketplace, earning a livelihood, while I dwelled in security. He had a ready grasp of Talmud, and a superb mastery of grammar. My only joy was to see him. The sun has set on all happiness, for he has gone on to eternal life, leaving me dismayed in a foreign land. Whenever I see his handwriting or one of his books, my heart is churned inside me, and my sorrow is rekindled. And on that sad note, we'll end for today. But I'll be back next episode with the conclusion of the Maimonides story. Thanks for listening. Circus will return.